I am about to deliver a message on one of the most politically incorrect passages you'll find in all of the New Testament. It's a passage that, for the most part, the church has avoided in our generation and by many leaders as well. In fact, several phrases are going to appear in our text for our study today that are literally loaded with emotional fireworks. They're going to create an immediate response, a predisposed inward response from the notions that you may have heard or widespread opinions you may have been influenced by and maybe in your own heart and life, it may be the way you feel. The majority of Christians in our world today have chosen to ignore the implications of this text or have chosen to explain them away or simply assign them to some time, you know, long, long ago before society ever, you know, grew up. These are loaded phrases. They're going to appear in Titus chapter 2 when you preach expositionally and you go through books of the Bible verse by verse, you eventually get to some of those verses that are no longer preached today. This is one of them. Paul is going to deliver to Titus some instruction to deliver through the older women to the young married women that they are to be, and I'll give you the phrases now, they are to be workers at home and submissive to their own husbands. How's that grab you? Why don't we just go ahead and dismiss, okay? (laughs) I mean, this raises eyebrows, certainly outside the church, but it raises eyebrows inside the church now, today. The ideas presented by the Apostle Paul on submission and homemaking are are viewed by the American culture, certainly, as relics, you know, from this past dinosaur age before we ever grew up when men used to drag their wives around by the hair and they ate everything raw. You know, that's just what this belongs with. Surely Paul doesn't mean what we think he said. And he certainly doesn't mean that for us 2,000 years later. Well, the truth is, a thinking we could categorically refer to as feminist thinking outside the church, and now, by the way, securely rooted inside the evangelical church, certainly understands at face value what Paul means, which is why there's so much ink spilled on this text. It's one of the reasons the Bible is so troubling to them when you come to passages like these. We have all kinds of people doing all sorts of interpretive uh, gymnastics to make Paul say something other than what he said. One, in fact, the, the predominant, one of the predominant feminist organizations called NOW, the National Organization for Women, has for decades, in fact, since 1966, been effectively calling for an abandonment of exactly what we're about to study. They want the end of marriage, which they view as slavery. They use terms like that. They want the end of motherhood. They have demanded that the corporation, the corporate world, and the state and the educational system take on more and more of the responsibility of raising children. They're lobbying that marriage as an institution effectively end 
In fact, there's one member of the European Union that introduced legislation a couple of years ago, it didn't pass, but that marriage could be a seven-year contract at the end of seven years without any legal implications. You could break it up or you could re-up for another seven. And that's the generation we, we, we live in, largely because they equate any kind of marital submission to slavery. One member of the National Organization for Women said that, quote, freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. Now, men don't really help too much on this. I mean, there are plenty of men who make this kind of conclusion easy, especially to a woman who doesn't know the Lord. And I'll explain where the battle began in a few minutes. Some of you are old enough to remember the slogan that, that ran around the U.S. for quite a while that said simply, quote, motherhood, dash, just say no. In fact, one of the greatest successes that we have now inherited from the feminist movement, the legacy of the American feminist movement, is the legal right granted to women to end the life of her pre-born baby. Regardless of the fact that even now, secular science, medical science, has conclusively proven that life begins for that baby long before birth. Add to that the the throwing off of restraints, uh, which has been part of the feminist agenda. That that lack of restraint has not made men out of boys, by the way. Men have been all too willing to acclimate to the female culture of autonomy and independence and sexual freedom. I mean, why get married and have children anyway when you can have the physical pleasures of marriage without a covenant of fidelity? You can have the added income of two breadwinners and continue sort of the party lifestyle. Why settle down and live off one income and and raise a family and a home? And if the children ever do hit the radar, you can either abort them or go ahead and have them, but then hand them off or over to someone else to raise so that you are minimally affected. Like one actress who said a few years ago, you know, I was never handicapped by children. Thus our culture goes along believing that it has found what it really wants. Sexual freedom, individuality, autonomy, self-serving, all in the name of coming of age, all in the name of, of sophistication and maturity. You remember that story that maybe you read when you were in elementary school by Hans Christian Andersen? where the emperor was told by two weavers that they had the ability to make him an amazing suit of clothing. It would be so magnificent, however, and so beautiful that only the sophisticated would be able to see it, only those truly mature in their hearts. And, of course, the emperor thought, well, I'll obviously be able to see it. So he paid them quite a fee to to do it. And so they began to, to weave away, spin away on imaginary shuttles and work with imaginary needles and imaginary thread. And the king would send leader after leader to report back to him on their progress. And, of course, they wanted to be sophisticated, and they would be able to see this. And so they'd come back to the king, and they'd say, oh, it's, it's magnificent. Can't believe how beautiful these clothes are going to look on you. Finally, the big day arrives when the emperor paraded through the streets in his suit of clothing. And no one wanted to be viewed as less than sophisticated. And so everybody oohed and aahed, isn't that magnificent? Until he passed an innocent little boy who pointed at the emperor and said, do you remember, the emperor what? 
has no clothes. They hit the brakes and the parade and the procession. Who will tell the truth about abortion and risk being cast outside the world of political and moral sophistication by saying they are actually taking the lives of real human living babies? I mean, who will say and be cast aside as some relic that to be rid of motherhood is to abandon the foundation of family and lose the greatest potential role of influence known on planet earth. I mean, who will say and be viewed as some Victorian that a woman who throws away the constraint of the covenant of marriage is not going to be cherished by a world of men. She is going to be exploited by a world of men. I thought I might say something about it. (laughs) Cohabitation, abortion, freedom from the rigors of motherhood, the constraints of a covenant of purity and fidelity. I mean, look at our new clothes. Our society has been buying these suits of clothes in earnest for the past several decades, and everybody's been saying, you know, but, but we like them. I mean, it makes us feel so light. It makes us feel so unencumbered. I mean, we can even feel a breeze. Well, of course you can. You're clothed in nothing more than your imagination. The truth is all the opinions and and the messages and the propaganda of our politically correct world are not making people more contented, more satisfied, healthier, happy, fulfilled. The clothing of our world is at best threadbare. In fact, if the eyes of humanity could be opened all at once, like Adam and Eve, they would discover all of a sudden that they are naked. Even though everyone has said, aren't your clothes magnificent? Aren't you something? The dawning of revelation brings the truth. We're naked. In spite of the advertisement and the propaganda and the endorsement and the applause, our world outside of God's order and outside of God's design is still trying to cover up what it intuitively knows is its shame. And so where do you start to tell the world the truth? You start with us. Paul told Titus to go and organize the churches on the island of Crete. He didn't tell him to go order and organize the island of Crete, but to go organize the churches. He knew that an organized, active, committed to the gospel church would have people within it so committed that they would go out and infiltrate their culture like salt and tell their world the truth. They would go out and they would impact their culture as they go around turning on the light. And Paul is about to tell Titus to teach them to turn on the light as it relates to marriage and motherhood. Doesn't that just sound old-fashioned now? Because it is. Now, the world is going to be quick to jump in, and a lot of evangelicals as well, to say that, you know, those are cultural ideas, or at least part and parcel, certain parcels of them. You know, those are expressions that belong 
to the first century. So we just sort of culturally assign them back 2,000 years ago. So before we jump into the fireworks display, let me have you look back at verse 1 of chapter 2 in this letter to Titus. And I want you to notice how he sets the stage for everything he's going to teach related to older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. He says in verse 1, but you, Titus, in other words, all these false teachers are teaching this, but you, but as for you, Titus, here's what I want you to teach. I want you to speak the things which are fitting for what? Sound doctrine. Would you notice Paul does not say, Titus, go and teach the things which are fitting for the culture of Crete. He doesn't say, uh, Titus, I want you to go and teach the things which are fitting for the first century. It fits them. They haven't grown up yet. No. He says, teach those things because they happen to fit alongside of, with, sound doctrine. And you don't tinker with doctrine. These are timeless truths. So these truths are not only fitting for the first century, they are fitting for the 21st century. Now, as Paul continues with the curriculum for young mothers and wives, which is the context here in verses 4 and 5, he's going to effectively deliver through Titus three more distinctive characteristics that they are to model their lives after. And I think this is where it gets especially interesting in our culture. Let's back up to verse 3 and get a running start before we jump into the fireworks. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching, would you note this, by the way, what is good? You ought to circle the word good. Culture is saying that this isn't going to be good. This is not going to be good. Paul says this is good. This is good. What's good, Paul? Teach them, younger wives and mothers, encourage them to what? Verse 4, love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible and pure. And that's where we stopped. Now for today, teach them to be Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So for the sake of an ally, let me order it this way. Paul is giving instruction to younger wives and mothers regarding their priority, their mentality, and their humility. Now I want you to notice, first of all, her priority. Paul writes, teach them to be workers at home. What does that mean? Workers at home is a compound original word combining the word for house, oikos, and ergon, work, task. We get our word ergonomics from that Greek word. Home tasker, homemaker, home worker. The wife and mother then is to expend her energy primarily at home. One author wrote it this way, to maintain a nest and a haven for her children and her husband. Obviously, now, in this context, he is writing to younger mothers who would then have younger children. Some translations render this phrase, keepers at home. And some would say, well, if she's to be the keeper at home, then that means she must be kept at home. Whatever you do, don't let her out. So you kind of get this mental image. She's chained to the kitchen sink. She's got six, seven, eight you know, crying children at her feet. Now, Paul didn't mean that the only place a wife and mother can work 
is in the home, within those four walls and that roof. In fact, if you just go back and think about what he would have been saying to them, that wife would have worked in the garden and in the barn and in the field and with other women in other fields at times to help in the community and other community events and then in the the church for a variety of needs. In fact, go study the Proverbs 31 woman and you discover that she she is interviewing and hiring her own household staff. My wife has often joked with me, honey, I'd be a much more virtuous woman if you'd let me have a household staff. (laughs) I mean, she's out there bartering in the market with tradesmen. She's negotiating real estate deals. She's expanding the land and the rotation of crops. She's even going out of her way to go out and find the poor who need assistance. She isn't chained to the kitchen sink. The family isn't her only focus. And I'm concerned that we have the other extreme, that the family's become an idol. That isn't her only focus, but it is her primary focus. You see, Paul isn't so much defining the only place a wife and mother can work. What he's defining is that the home is the number one place. It is the number one priority for her energy and for her effort for her work. And Paul then to this culture is effectively commending the roles of mother and wife and homemaker, which was the opposite of what the Cretan culture was all about back then. The the people will say, well, you know, he's just trying to make women fit into the culture. They haven't studied their history. It wasn't their culture any more than it's ours. He's commending them to do something that would be radically different than their culture. And he started it out by saying, look, this fits sound doctrine, so you haven't heard it before, and it happens to be good. Even though it's the toughest thing on the planet. The home is the place where the mother virtually impacts every member of society, where they learn to respect authority and they learn virtues and they learn relational skills and they learn compassion and honesty and a work ethic and, and above all the application of biblical truth to life. They're pointed to God. No matter what the emperor says, no matter what the subjects around you are saying, this is good. No wonder though there's so much pressure For young wives and mothers, no wonder the pressure is so great, inside and outside, to adopt the ungodly precepts of radical feminism, which believe that wives and mothers who are at home are second class. I mean, you just missed the bus. You are really out of date and out of touch. You're out of step. Add to that the enormity of the pressure of the culture, add to that the the pressure of perhaps even a husband who wants that added stream of revenue no matter what. Add to that their own fallen nature and desires and the list of wants that go on and on and on and the reserve that holds them back from the rigors of that kind of commitment. I mean, the pressure is on to leave the home. Not just women, but men. That's why when Elijah's ministry was summarized and a ministry that will happen at the end of human history as we know it, it says it's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back home. The pressure's on to leave the home. And the woman who is the anchor, the foundation of that haven, is specially pressured to leave it. 
In my research, I read one article entitled The New Breadwinners, which gave the statistics of the incredible rise of mothers of young children now working full-time jobs outside their home. If you can imagine this statistic, in 1967, the percentage of young mothers with young children working full-time outside the home was 10%. Only one out of 10. Nine were home. One was working outside the home. Today, that number is approaching 40%. And the rise of daycare then over the past 30 years especially has matched the alteration of the home in our world as we once knew it. Today, there are 12 million infants and toddlers cared for at daycare centers at the rate of nearly 40 hours a week. Now, obviously, we live in an imperfect world, don't we? There are reasons mothers may have to work for season, maybe several years, and maybe economic reasons. I fear most of it is simply to keep up with the Joneses, to match the living standard of our culture. But there may be a mom, single mom, raising her children who must work outside the home. Divorced women who are providing for a family, women whose husbands have died or are disabled and unable to work, who who may be imprisoned or who left the family and is unwilling to pay any kind of support for the children. It could be wives who are without children or whose children have grown with fewer obligations to keeping the home, more time available. She and her husband may agree as they study and pray and talk it through that she may choose a job outside to work in some ministry perhaps or, or the church or, a, or an organization or a school or a hospital or maybe pick up the career. She set aside in order to focus as a priority, especially while they were young. But let's not put on our blinders and buy into this cultural full-court press for couples to simply raise their standard of living at the expense of God-given priority, which I fear is the majority of cases. Their God-given responsibility. I mean, responsibility, by the way, which is really short-lived, I mean, parenting little ones especially won't last long. It seems like it will last forever. But before you know it, it's over. It's over. My wife was cleaning an area of the house yesterday, and she, she showed me what she found, this plastic guitar, about that long, orange little plastic strings, I think a little blue on it too. And I, I got it wrong. I, I thought we got it when one of our daughters was a preschooler, but no, it, was, it, was, it goes all the way back to the twins. All four of them worked that thing over, strummed it, played it, hit each other over the head with it, well, whatever. She said, honey, we got to put this up somewhere. And I said, absolutely. I mean, what a treasure to see that and, and to remember And it's over. Like that. I thought it was interesting to read the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development 
not necessarily the most biblical organization on the planet, but they've been conducting a $100 million investigation. They've tracked 1,100 children from birth through preschool. $100 million to track and, and identify behavioral issues and, and maturity developmental issues and all of that for those children that have been in daycare at the level of 30 to 40 hours a week. They found that, that uh, over 30 hours brings on significant issues. But here's a secular organization writing, and I quote, We have found that the total number of hours a child is without a parent, primarily their mother, from birth through preschool, the number of hours away or without a parent matters. It matters. A hundred million dollars to find out it matters. I would have been willing to tell them that for only one million dollars if they'd asked me. (laughs) Paul is teaching what even, even a secular society can pick up on. Your, your priority is first and, and foremost the home, especially when it matters most. And the numbers are staggering in our culture, by the way. Right now, 72 million women are in the workforce. The majority of them married with children. 72 million and 5 million are stay-at-home mothers. Think about that. 72 million out there in the workforce. And only 5 million. That's only five times the size of Wake County. This is a national statistic. The home is being abandoned. There's another study I came across dealing with college-age girls. They're tracking now developmental issues going all the way through high school and into college. This article... A couple of years ago, it was published in Psychology Today, so you know it's got to be right. It caught my attention. It talked about the, the pressure young girls are facing concerning their image. And they write, and I quote, again, a secular source, Deprived of an internal compass, girls are competing to be everything. Because they saw their mothers trying to be everything. They're turning colleges into incubators for eating disorders and numerous unrealistic self-imposed expectations. Now get this, and I quote, Those who are not mentored by parents are not inoculated against peer pressure and wind up turning to their peers and the media for guidance. And then the article quotes from an article from, uh, an article from Harvard University, which says, quote, It blames a girl's image obsession on the culture of neglect. Kids, they write, are effectively raising each other. It sounds like there are some people in our culture that are beginning to say the emperor has no clothes. But the culture at large continues to disparage homemaking and motherhood. And Paul tells these believers in the first century and the 21st century the opposite. In fact, he says what we need to do is we need to focus a spotlight and stop a little bit to applaud and praise these subjects called motherhood and marriage. What we have to do is retrace our steps back home.
Paul goes on to refer to not only the priority of these young wives and mothers in the home, but their mentality. He adds this mentality to pursue in the middle of verse 5. He simply drops in another attribute. It's the word kindness. It comes from a word that can be translated, and often is in the New Testament, goodness. Jesus of God. It's a goal, obviously, for these women. All of these are goals, just as First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are goals for godly men. In our language, you could understand this word to refer to good-heartedness. It means that her desire is to do whatever is good for her children, to do whatever is good for her husband. Her mentality then has this filter. She asks herself the question, is this good for my children? Is this good for my husband? Is this good for me? Is this a good thing to do, a good thing to say, a good way to act, whatever, a good way to provide? So this is her mentality. It's geared toward goodness, which is an attribute of the character of God. Now Paul goes on to refer not just to her priority and her mentality, but I want to spend the balance of the time then with her humility. He writes further in verse 5, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. In other words, a secular culture knows that someone who claims to be a believer, a believing wife, who dishonors her husband can lead them, knowing how she ought to be acting, to dishonor the Word of God. It's kind of interesting. It's as if Paul is saying the world is watching us. And it is. But what you need to know here is that Paul is using... In the original language, what's called the middle voice for this verb. And that's significant. Because Paul is not telling men, this is your new theme verse for marriage. He's not telling men to go home and command that they be subject to you. It's the middle voice. What that means is he's telling the women to voluntarily be submissive to their husbands. And he's commending them to do it as a God-ordained role. So you could render this phrase to continually place themselves under the authority of their own husbands. Now, if you've been a believer for any period of time, you know that Paul expands on this idea, bringing men into his list of subjects in Ephesians chapter 5 and in his letter to the Colossian church, and he refers to the wife as the church in his analogy. And she is to respond to her husband as the church responds in submission to Jesus Christ. And then he also tells the husband to be a loving representative, in fact, to act toward her as Jesus Christ acts toward the church. He is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And I can tell you from personal experience that my wife would also have a much easier time submitting to me if I acted more like Jesus. But still this idea of of submission, that there's some kind of order and arrangement, it's like drinking sour milk today. But I want you to think for a moment before you throw the milk out. Everyone in a well-ordered society is submitting to somebody. In fact, Ephesians 5 tells us all to submit to each other in unique ways. We submit to one another. But God has ordered arrangements for that kind of authority and submission. 
Think of it this way. Children submit to parents. Students submit to teachers. Basketball players submit to referees. Citizens submit to town councils. And when you drive out of here, there's going to be policemen out there on Tryon and out here on Holly Springs Road, and they're going to wave their hand at you. And you're going, to, you're going to more than likely, I would hope, submit to him. And it will not have anything to do with kind of person he is. You're not going to roll down your window and say, you know, why should I follow your direction? I'm the one who just came from church. You skipped. We paid him to skip church, so don't get on to him, okay? Your obedience doesn't have anything to do with who he is. It has to do with what kind of authority he's been given. It has nothing to do with he's a better person than me or he's superior to me. He just happens to have authority that I don't have. And it's a good idea to submit to him. And by the way, authority isn't a privilege, you know, to be exploited, to build up your ego. It's a responsibility to be carried out for the benefit of those under your care. And authority happens to be the arrangement of God for all of life. According to God's design, the wife is under the authority of her husband. He'll ultimately give an account for her. The husband is under the authority of the elders, as well as everyone else in the, in the family, the church family. The elders are under the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is under the authority of God the Father. Jesus Christ is equal to the Father, Philippians 2. In essence, equally divine. Yet he subordinates himself willingly to the will of the Father. So you read about him in the gospel saying, I've come to do the will of my Father. Paul wrote to the Corinthians this way. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head that is the authority of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God, the Father, is the head of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 3. Now part of the problem with this concept of headship and submission runs counterculture to everything women may have been raised to believe, which is why Titus needed older women to practically teach younger women, wives and mothers, as new believers in Christ. And part of our problem, I don't know what was going on in the first century, but I know part of our problem are the buzzwords that are created. Buzzwords like equality and equal rights. Without giving any thought to it. I mean, we got to say, we got to have equal rights. Listen, I don't have an equal right to live in the White House. If I wanted to, I couldn't. They would throw me out. But I'm equal in essence. But I'm not equal in that authority. Uh, the word equality can be deceptive depending on how you're using it. In fact, Erwin uh, Lutzer points out in one of his books on this issue of that feminists have extended the definition of equality beyond equal treatment and equal value to now embrace equal roles for men and women. That is, the place of women should be interchangeable with the place of men. Whatever men do, women should be free to do, and all gender-based roles should be abolished, end quote. Even the church now is growing more and more divided on whether or not a woman can preach or pastor. 
Surely they have equal rights to the highest level of authority in the body. I mean, aren't we all equal? So we got to take the prohibition that Paul delivers the women to not teach men. We got to mean that's something back then. Or maybe just as a reference to them teaching their husbands. I guess that means they can't sit in the audience. But aren't we all equal? Yes, we are equal in our essence. We are both male and female created in the image of God. We are equal in, in, in the plan of salvation. We are equal in our individual priesthood before God. A woman doesn't need to pray through a man to reach God. We are equal in our accountability before God. Adam will not be there saying, well, let's talk about that woman again. Oh, he tried that one time. It didn't work. Eve isn't going to say, well, what about that snake? No, we are individually and entirely accountable to God. But equality in essence does not mean equality in function. Or I could move into the White House. What we've now inherited from 40 years of worldly feminism and about a decade of evangelical feminism is not only the fact that we're losing the God-ordained structure for the home and the family and now the church, but a tragic failure to glory in and embrace the distinctions of men and women and to find contentment as we submit to the Holy Spirit in His arrangement and contentment and satisfaction in what He's created and, and ordered. The lines are all just sort of, you color now wherever you want to color. But you need to understand, and I want to spend a minute or two, on the fact that this problem isn't just 40 years old. You've got to go all the way back to the original home. It began in the Garden of Eden. And if you want to look, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to spend just a moment here. But I want, I want to show you this, because this is where it all started. It isn't an American problem. It isn't a Cretan problem. It's, it's a problem with humanity. Both Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Adam's headship in marriage was established before the fall of man into sin. In fact, it wasn't until Adam ate the fruit, to go back and look at it, it wasn't until Adam ate the fruit that their eyes were opened. Her eyes weren't open until he sinned because he's her head and authority. Distinctions of masculinity and femininity are enhanced. They're ordained by God as part of the created order, which means they echo out there in every human heart. They echo because it's been stamped on their heart. That a man ought to act like a man and a woman ought to act like a woman. But the fall of man in sin introduced distortions in relationships. It distorted and twisted sexual relationships. It distorted and twisted and diminished the marriage and every other relationship. And part of the curse that God pronounced on Adam and Eve had to do with their own relationship and every marriage that would come after them. And so before they were exiled from the garden, God told Eve that now as a result of her sin, as part of her fallen nature, that she would have this desire for her husband. Now that sounds like a good thing, and the men go, that's a great thing. Well, we're given a nuance of what that means, because it appears for the first time, it appears again in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, which helps us understand what the Hebrew language means. 
It's repeated as God is warning Cain, who is about to murder his brother, Abel. He says to Cain, listen, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Same phrase. And you must master it. In other words, Cain, sin wants to control your life. Sin wants to dominate your life. It wants to master you, but you must master it. So God is telling Eve, before she's exiled with Adam, and the daughters of Eve, by the way, which includes every female in this audience, that a woman now, because of the fall, will need to depend on the, upon the Holy Spirit and the power of God, because by nature, which is now fallen, she will have a desire that will no longer naturally default to, willingly delight in responding to the leadership of men, especially her husband, but her natural default will now be to manipulate him, to dominate him, to master him. And then God turns around and talks to Adam. The last part of verse 16, and he says to Adam, before Adam is exiled with his wife, Adam and you, because of the curse now upon the fallen human race, you will rule over her. What he means there is that Adam's default desire will no longer be to provide loving, nurturing leadership, but exploitation and self-centered, self-promoting, self-pleasing rule over the woman. See, God created Eve to be at Adam's side, pictured by the fact he created her from one of Adam's ribs. But Adam is now going to have the natural fallen desire to put her under his feet. And you go to a culture, ladies and gentlemen, without the gospel, and that's where women are. They're under the feet of men. And the woman is going to do her utmost to not just get back to Adam's side, but to rule over his head. So the battle began back in the garden. And that's the reason we have the battle today. We have to submit to the Holy Spirit. Now comes along a new body of believers, though. Now comes along the gospel. I mean, this is the New Testament. That was, that was the Old Testament. That's Adam and Eve's problem. What about us? Paul says, Titus, go teach the older women to teach the younger women. That the gospel, what the gospel does is return you to the kind of relationship that God intended for you to have before the fall of man. Where man picks up the woman from the dust under his feet and places her at his side and leads her and cares for her and provides for her by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she, by means of submission ultimately to the Holy Spirit, lovingly serves him and respects him and follows him. This is the restoration of relationships. This is the gospel. This is what the world is watching to see if we can do. If God really does make a difference. Are there really distinctives that God has ordained? Are there roles? Or will we, like them, diminish them and twist them and distort them and deny them and rewrite them? No. What God wants is, in many ways, a return back 
to the original home that he intended where men are men and women are women, where men are superior to women in being men. And women are superior to men in being women. And the differences and the nuances and the distinctives are enhanced and enjoyed and reveled in as we honor the unique creation of God in man and woman. Our 24-year-old daughter is currently serving as a missionary in Santiago, Chile, and she's teaching five-year-olds. And she had on her blog, came across it, and I thought I'd use this as an illustration as we wrap up, but she's teaching these little boys and girls in a different culture, and she's learning Spanish as fast as she can. And, and, and the distinctives have become very apparent to her between the boys and the girls, probably because it's a different culture. But she says it's fascinating how transcultural these distinctives are. And she's just listed a bunch of them, and I thought I'd read them to you. I've edited them for time's sake. She said this, the boys in my classroom, and she's speaking in general terms, the boys want to color pictures of superheroes. And if it isn't a superhero, it's a dog or a big scary animal. Girls want to color pictures of castles and princesses and flowers and rainbows. Boys dodge my hugs, but pick me endless amounts of flowers. Girls pick flowers to keep for themselves, but they hug me throughout the day. (laughs) Boys take their schoolwork like a competition. Girls want to offer help to whomever needs it. They're not supposed to look at each other's papers, which made the assessment test this week very interesting. Boys flex in the bathroom mirror and try jumping the furthest off the bench as possible. Girls pose in front of the mirror and use the bench for twirling. Boys want to play ball with the older boys on the playground and truly believe they could keep up. Girls hover around the swing set, not giving a care to the loud ball game going on a few feet away. Boys always want to be first and fastest. Girls hold hands and walk around together. Boys play in the dirt on the playground and always have to be reminded to clean up. Girls play with the dirt on the playground and volunteer to wash up. While playing at their play center inside the classroom, the boys always go for the big cars and trucks and make car sounds and railroad tracks out of anything they can find. And the girls find the princess and the prince in that big minivan. And while the boys are creating railroad tracks and battlegrounds, the girls are rearranging the insides of their dollhouses. Boys stick with the same thing for maybe 10 minutes and are bored and ready to conquer something different. Girls can do the same play activity the entire afternoon, simply perfecting it or changing it all up. Boys tell me that I'm pretty. The girls ask me why I'm not married. (laughs) It's because of her father. That's the answer. (laughs) Why are they in general terms that way? Because of the one who made them that way. Now, these these are obvious, generic Distinctions, and I'm speaking in general terms. I know girls that can beat the socks off guys in basketball and golf. I, I know some guys that can arrange flowers and cook. Nothing wrong with that. 
In fact, I grew up next to a girl named Susan from toddlerhood till we went away to college. Same age. And on a rainy day, I mean, up to the age of 13, 14, you could find me in her garage with her playing Barbies. <laughs> it was a secret until now, but don't tell anybody. I mean, how creative is that stuff? That was great. The doors open, you got little hangers, you got all kinds of stuff. And I was absolutely fascinated by the creativity of all of that. Didn't want anybody to know. In general terms, in fact, these general terms are wanting by our world that is so twisted to be erased. But God has arranged them for our benefit and our well-being. And when we, he writes at the end of verse 5, live like this, the word of God will not be dishonored. In other words, the world is watching. Like the, the German philosopher Heinrich Hein who said this, he said, show me in, in the 19th century, show me your redeemed life and I might be inclined to believe in your redeemer. Are you really different from me? If we don't strive to live like this, if the Christian doesn't care about the word of God, if we don't follow his word, if we rewrite his word, if we deny his word, if we ignore the implications of his word, why should they out there? But we as Christians, I mean, we're here together, right? We love the assembly. We love the worship. We love the joy we share as we approach God together. We love his word. And even the reminders of how totally fallen we are and how entirely dependent we are upon the Holy Spirit to get anything right. Even these reminders of a redeemed priority and a redeemed mentality and a redeemed sense of humility, we, beloved, are are, are all, all over again encouraged to submit to the Spirit of God who pulls us and prods us and and pushes us and, and pursues us back to God's created design. By his strength, we are literally, as we follow him, retracing our steps back home, the kind of home he intended. Let's sing as we close our service together. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true.